This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This year marks 20 years since 19 men hijacked four planes, driving two of the aircraft into the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and one into a field in Pennsylvania after several of the passengers fought back. The attacks killed nearly 3,000 people and left 25,000 people injured and were organized by Osama bin Laden, used his faith as justification for the attacks. Several days after September 11, 2001, President Bush addressed the country. These acts and violence against innocents violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. And it's important for my fellow Americans to understand that. The English translation is not as eloquent as the original Arabic, but let me quote from the Quran itself. In the long run, evil in the extreme will be the end of those who do evil. For that they rejected the signs of Allah and held them up to ridicule. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. These terrorists don't represent peace. They represent evil and war. When we think of Islam, we think of a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. Billions of people find comfort and solace and peace And that's made brothers and sisters out of every race. Under the Bush administration, the U.S. initiated the, quote, war on terror, which carried out a number of military interventions around the world to fight Islamic extremism, which included invading and occupying two majority Muslim nations, Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, all of this political rhetoric and direct action had significant consequences for how the country and church engaged Muslims domestically and internationally. We wanted to learn how American evangelicals interacted with Muslims before 9-11 and what has changed since. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor at Christianity Today. We have such an interesting topic to get into today. And 9-11, of course, wow, I think you might not might even be able to remember our own gut reactions as that was actually happening. What is your initial thoughts, feelings, emotions as we quickly approach the 20th anniversary of it? Just interesting to think about the relationship between American evangelicals and Islam over the years since. Locally, for me, one of the more interesting things has been my son becoming good friends with a number of his Muslim classmates, you know, just kind of experiencing the world a little bit through their eyes. You know, I remember when Trump was elected, one of his friends saying, you know, kind of very heavily saying, well, I don't know what this means, but I think my family is going to have to leave the country. They didn't. My son came home from school that day very distressed and asking what was going to happen to his friend. In the intervening years, one of the larger churches in our in our town, uh, just a couple blocks from me, a large Assemblies of God church, became a, a Muslim center, became a mosque. Interestingly enough, you know, when the Assemblies of God folks built it, they they built the property to face Jerusalem, and so <laughs> wow. when they so sold the property. The Muslims were like, "Hey, that's you know close enough to being angled to point at Mecca." It worked pretty well. So it is interesting to have this very Christian-looking building from the outside be a mosque. A lot of people showing up for the open houses, a lot of kind of hospitality, but also there's been, you know, obviously some antagonism as there's been in other communities to large mosques being in their in their area. Wheaton and, and the surrounding towns are, you know, increasingly Muslim. A lot of Muslim refugees settled in this area, a lot of immigrants in this area. My experience has been going from thinking about 
Islam as world religion and kind of abstract, kind of like <laughs> learning about five pillars, all that kind of stuff to like, oh, no, that's my neighbor down the street. Oh, no, that's this friend and that friend. Having much more of a direct connection to Muslims more than a theoretical relationship to Islam. How about you, Morgan? I think this is actually one of the issues where I have had a lot of formation around it, courtesy of CT. And this is not just since I have begun working here, but also about with regards to articles that were published in the past decade and a half, which is kind of around the time that I became an avid CT reader. And we've really elevated a lot of voices with people who are trying to find common cause with, trying to build relationships with when it comes to things like refugees, trying to figure out how to serve them. And we, in fact, have had a guest on who some people may be familiar with named Bob Roberts, who is a Southern Baptist pastor who is extremely close to a number of Muslims and a giant personality and very funny on these types of topics and the ways that he's built relationships with them. But yeah, I think reading those articles has been very encouraging with regards to seeing how Christians are trying to work with them and even sometimes see their interests overlap and so forth. As far as the personal experience Thing. I may have not experienced exactly in the same way you have, Ted, although the Islamic Center that you're talking about was on my bike ride home. So <laughs> I definitely remember seeing that, especially on the days when I was in the office on Fridays and people were coming and going from that as well. Yeah, I generally think this stuff is really interesting and exciting, but also in this Bush speech, one thing that essentially him saying, don't harass people. And he actually has a line in there about, you know, that women who are wearing headscarves should feel comfortable and free to go around, go about their actual everyday lives. And I, I don't necessarily, when I was reading that, I was like, wow, I think sometimes people, we could still use a good reminder on these topics, just seeing people being harassed. And obviously we know in the aftermath of 9-11, even people who kind of quote unquote looked Muslim were subject to that. And then I had a conversation with a friend, not even two days ago, who is half Pakistani and has a, I don't know, quote, Arab name. It's obviously not Arab because he is Pakistani. We were talking about him being detained, him and his family members being detained at airports at various times. Yeah, it's definitely a complicated identity to still have in the U.S. and it opened yourself up to a lot of stigma and suspicion. You know, it's a group that I care a lot about and I think it's important for us to know the history of this relationship. Who is our guest today? I am thrilled that our guest is Tommy Kidd, who is one of my favorite historians. He does a lot at Baylor University. He's Distinguished Professor of History, the Vardaman Endowed Professor of History, and he's Associate Director for the Institute for Studies of Religion. He is also the author of many books, most recently that people will remember, Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis. But he's also got some great other books of history, including some biographies of Patrick Henry, George Whitfield, Benjamin Franklin. It's got Thomas Kidd's byline on it. I recommend you read it. To our purposes today, he one of those books is American Christians and Islam, Evangelical Culture and Muslims from the Colonial Period to the Age of Terrorism. Tommy, thank you for coming on Quick to Listen. We're thrilled that you're here. Uh, we should also mention that he runs, uh, one of the two people running the Evangelical History blog over at the Gospel Coalition. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. Tommy, I want to start with the Bush speech. Do you find anything remarkable about what Bush says here? Maybe me being 11 when September 11th happened makes it challenging for me to understand the greater context or see what Bush is saying as remarkable or not remarkable. But give me what your thoughts were then and how you look at it now. I think that Bush is a fascinating character on religion, both because of his own evangelical conversion experience, but also because of his relative moderation on Islam itself. And I think that it speaks to, it was a different Republican Party 20 years ago. I don't think his views about Islam would be warmly received by the quote, base of the Republican Party today and, and also by many evangelicals. I think that Bush also reflected a, a sort of 
ambivalence about how to react to Islam and Muslims in the wake of 9-11 that I find totally understandable. Sort of goes without saying that (laughs) 9-11 demonstrated that Islam has a serious problem with radical jihadism in, in certain segments of the global Muslim community. But that Bush's inclination to want to reassure people that the majority of Muslims are not jihadists, they're not terrorists, is the right one too. I tend to contrast Bush's speech, and there was also times where he talked about Muslims and Christians worshiping the same God, which became a, a live, renewed debate after 9-11, whether, the, whether that's actually theologically true or not, that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. But he also said, I think on September 20th in his address to Congress, when he first began to talk about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, I think the most famous line of that speech when he talked about how freedom and fear and justice and injustice, two or three pairings like that, had always been at war. And he said, God is not neutral on these questions. Again, I found that totally comprehensible when he said that, but I also thought, well, that's a a sort of a more uh, religious absolutist kind of approach to what just happened that is a little bit in tension with his admirable ways that he's trying to think the best of of the world Muslim community. And so even in himself, he reflects a sort of tension and ambivalence that many Christians, especially in America, felt about how to react to Muslims after 9-11. There was some controversy even back then with some of his emphases about Islam being a religion of peace. You know, we ran some pieces in CT about that, as well as the questions about, is the God of Muhammad the father of Jesus? There was that kind of tension about, you know, should the president of the United States be the person kind of defining what Islam is and is is not about. I guess there's still some aspects of that, but I guess that has changed. What I mentioned in the top of the episode about people being more familiar with Muslims, you know, Muslims being more people's neighbors, there being more Muslims in America. And I do feel like maybe for Bush, there was an element of like, let me explain some of this to all y'all. Your book is helpful on some of this. Was there an aspect where earlier presidents, earlier political leaders kind of had an aspect of explaining Islam, or I guess way back in the day, Mohammedism, it would have been called, to the American public? I mean, was there familiarity with tenets of Islam and what what Islam was about? There was talk about Islam, of course, throughout all of American history, going back to earliest uh, colonial period. But a lot of that, as you would expect, was based on polemical literature stereotypes and so forth. And of course, there had been a growing familiarity before 9-11 with the problem of Islamist terrorism, concern, for instance, about the Iranian revolution of 1979 and how the the attack on the, the American embassy, the hostage crisis resulted from that, that certainly 9-11 was, but because of the pain and death and, and suffering and then the the wars that at least indirectly resulted from 9-11 brought Islam to an unprecedented level of American and, and specifically American Christian consciousness. The Christian community was somewhat divided, as you, as you saw even in Bush's tension over this issue, between more charitable readings and then the more inflammatory and stereotypical readings. Without asking you to repeat your entire book here, um, (laughs) I do kind of want to give a little bit of an overview because I actually think the story that you tell in the book is pretty interesting. I don't know if there's some conflict over, you know, what has the relationship between Islam and the American either political system or the American majority or what have you. You know, you look at the early colonial period and early American period, people talk about, you know, Jefferson's writing about the Mohammedans and government. He's writing about those kinds of things. But how much experience did Americans and especially American leaders have with Muslims? I mean, was it theoretical or was it actual? It was both. Part of the reason I wrote the book and came out, I guess, about eight years after 9-11 was that on a personal level, 9-11, like many people, I just 
got me newly interested and sensitized to the question of Islam in American history as never before. And so, you know, before 9-11, I think I probably had seen references to Islam in, say, colonial American documents and so forth. And maybe, maybe it wasn't quite as much of interest of mine as it would be after 9-11. And so part of the reason I, I wrote the book was just to answer the question about, well, what did American Christians in particular know and think that they knew about Islam over the long period of American history? And so it turns out that in the colonial period, for instance, there were definitely biographies of Muhammad that were usually quite polemical, anti-Muslim biographies, probably the most popular one was called The True Nature of Imposture Displayed in the Life of Muhammad, which is <laughs> what they called him back then. And, and so, you know, Muhammad is in this reading an imposter. He's a fake. He's a charlatan. And so they would talk about the tricks that he would play, that he would, he would train a pigeon to pick peas out of his ear like the Holy Spirit was speaking into his ear all kinds of rumors and stories, apocryphal things about Muhammad's life. Question about that, Tommy. What was like, or who was the author and what type of interest did they have in writing a book like that? The author of that book was a man named Humphrey Prideaux, who was, I believe, an Anglican minister in England, but it was popular, like many books, it was published in England, but but circulated widely in America. And, and you can tell that, by, for instance, lists of library holdings in places like Philadelphia that they would have copies of this book. But you could see more broadly that it became almost ubiquitous that people in the 1700s in England and America, when they would refer to the prophet Muhammad, they would call him an imposter, whether they were citing Predo's book or not. Part of what Predo was doing, it was an apologetics book for Christianity. There's a growing interest at that time in world religions. There was exposure, I mean, in I think the 1680s, the Ottomans had been defeated at the gates of Vienna. There was growing awareness, the military and cultural issue about the Ottomans and uh, other Muslim groups. And there was an interest in the contrast between Christianity and Islam that prompted Credo's book, but other ones like it. There were lots of Europeans and also increasingly Americans who were dealing with the threat posed by the Barbary pirates coming out of North Africa, who just made a mockery of a European and American naval power for centuries. Their business was basically taking European and American ships captive and taking hostages of the sailors and stealing their cargo and, you know, ransoming the hostages in particular and putting pressure on them to convert to Islam. And that issue probably became the most popular topic in, in kind of pop literature at the time for Europeans and Americans to read. You know, there's just endless numbers of books about my time among the pirates that, you know, that, that <laughs> it worked. Where it worked then, it would work today. Real uh, insider and, account. Yeah, well, and and yeah, I mean, sometimes these these were actual people who had been held hostage by the Barbary pirates and that sort of thing, and it, and it just worked really well on kind of a pop literature level, but it also shaped people's impressions about what Islam was. And almost invariably, these would depict the Muslim pirates and captors as just exceptionally cruel that they were trying to get all their prisoners to convert to Islam, but all that converting required was confessing that there is one God and, and Muhammad is his prophet. So they portray Islam as being very nominal and very cruel and the, these sorts of things. And that certainly shaped American Christians' impressions of Islam for centuries. You know, I do have in my head that there's also a missions enthusiasm for I guess Muslims, or at least in that region of the world that emerges in kind of the early 1800s. I don't know how, how strong it was in, in the late 1700s. Is that connected to the, the anxiety about Barbary pirates and evangelical enthusiasm for going to hard places? Or is something else at work in kind of the missions drive to the Middle East or to North Africa or some of those regions? It's indirectly connected in the sense of raising awareness or at least impressions that American Christians have about Islam in the case of the Barbary pirates. 
But the missions movement is a more broad movement that's emerging in the 1790s, early 1800s, out of a sense that Protestants had basically failed to get behind any kind of serious international missions movement, much in contrast to the Catholic Church that had been working on evangelizing, for instance, Native Americans for centuries, while Protestants in America weren't really doing much about that. Some of the missions started to Native Americans or people like Adoniram Judson or going to Burma. This is a global initiative that by the 18-teens starts to include, at least nominally, outreach to the Middle East and to Muslim areas elsewhere. That does attract, I would say, disproportionate amounts of attention in the missionary literature in Britain and America. It's very hard. From the beginning of the missions movement, the Muslim world is identified as perhaps the hardest nut to crack, as it were, in the international missions movement. Part of that is that the Ottoman Empire had legal barriers against evangelism to Muslims. They're not just making this up. I mean, it was illegal to directly evangelize Muslims. I mean, was that true for like the British Empire? Did they also have laws against converting um, citizens of the British Empire to British Islam? missionaries would have been subject to the same laws in, in the Ottoman Empire, for sure. No, no, but, but I'm saying, did the British Empire allow their subjects to be converted to Islam? No, they didn't have legal restrictions against it. And for instance, there would be stories about European or American Christians being converted by the, the Barbary pirates because the pirates are saying, we'll set you free or we'll treat you better if you convert. And so some of the Barbary captivity narratives would lament, you know, they would do things like, well, there was a Catholic sailor who decided to convert to Islam, but the Protestant sailors were very brave. You know, <laughs> They would bring in these kind of stereotypes any, anytime they could, but, but no, there were not restrictions. Among, I mean, there, there was derision towards Protestants or guys and Catholics who would convert to Islam, but not legal restrictions. The Ottomans banned that, Muslims converting, but also just even proselytizing Muslims. And so what ended up happening is that uh, British or American missionaries in the Ottoman Empire often ended up working among Eastern Orthodox Christians who they didn't consider to be converted believing Christians. And they would set up schools, some of which were enormously influential. I mean, you know, American University in Beirut and places like that, I mean, the, that ended up being among the leading universities in a lot of the Muslim world were set up by missionaries. So they said, well, we can proselytize among these Eastern Orthodox Christians and we can do education and we can have a witness that's sort of cultural influence type of thing. They found that it was very difficult, both legally, but also personally, to do much evangelism among Muslims direct. That remained the case, certainly through the early 20th century. So, so there, there was, a, I would say, more attention given to Muslim missions in the 1800s, but not much fruit came from it in terms of Muslim conversions. Tommy, when did the first Muslim immigrants arrive in the U.S. and how do they start to change the perception of Muslims by the church in the U.S.? There were Muslim immigrants or at least Muslim-influenced immigrants from the earliest colonial period in America. But the problem is that most of them were African and they arrived in America as enslaved people. The vast majority of the sort of charter generations of Africans coming to America, mostly as slaves, the vast majority of them had absolutely no Christian background at all. And if they had influence of a monotheistic religion, it was often Islam, not Christianity. Some of them had some Catholic background, but it was at least as common that they would have Muslim influences in West Africa from Muslim missionaries operating in, in West Africa. Those were the first Muslim immigrants to America, but our records of them are, as you would guess, sparse to say the least. And, and they made very little impact on the way that white, the white Christians were thinking about Islam in America. When you get to the mid-1800s, you start to see very small numbers of 
immigrants from the Muslim world, but also African-Americans and certain white Americans who would convert to Islam for, for various reasons. Some of those people started to write books, apologetics for Islam. One sort of odd character, Alexander Russell Webb, was a white American with, who converted to Islam. And he ended up making a pretty big difference about, you know, he's sort of the spectacle of a white American who converts to Islam in the late 1800s. He has an influence on things like the World's Parliament of Religion in Chicago in 1893. By that point, there's growing interest in academic circles about world religions and sort of you know, studying world religions, you know, in a, quote, objective kind of way for more kind of scientific purposes to understand these religions on their own terms. So that really starts to shape more of the academic and not necessarily Christian discussion of Islam in America. But really, the number of Muslim immigrants to America overall is really quite small until 1965, when, as, as you all know, there is a revision to American immigration law that, for a variety of reasons, means that there's going to be a much greater influx of immigrants from the Muslim-majority world, uh, from the Middle East, some, but definitely from places like Pakistan. Yeah, I want to talk about the changes that the 1965 Immigration Act bring, but there's a couple of things that I think we should probably address first. And one of them is Nation of Islam. Can you give us a sense of what that emerges out of and how evangelicals begin to engage with that? The Nation of Islam is, again, an African-American-led movement coming out in the 1920s, 1930s in Midwestern cities, especially Detroit. There are a number of kind of pan-African nativist type of movements going on that are they're like the Nation of Islam, but the Nation of Islam is distinctive in the fact, obviously, that it portrays itself as a sort of African, African-American brand of Islam. Now, traditional Muslims do not regard the Nation of Islam as a orthodox form of, of Islam. Most famously, in the 1950s, uh, you get the conversion of, of Malcolm X to the Nation of Islam, and he becomes their most charismatic and articulate advocate. And they also attract celebrity converts uh, like Muhammad Ali and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Malcolm X really, by the mid-1960s, puts the Nation of Islam uh, very much into the American consciousness of at least a form of Islam that is very tied up with issues about race. And of course, that's a time of great upheavals in America about racial issues and inequality in the civil rights movement. And so the nation of Islam to your average white Christian observer seems relatively menacing because you know, whatever white Christians might think about Martin Luther King, at least he's a Christian and is interested in, say, racial integration, which you know, moderate white Christians would probably say that probably is a good idea at some point, but even if they wanted Martin Luther King to slow down and, and all that. Malcolm X is famously much more confrontational, not that interested in integration because he doesn't think that black Americans can ever trust white Christians to be true to their word. And, uh, you know, why, why do we want to integrate with the oppressor? Of course, there had always been negative associations among many American Christians with Islam, but the Nation of Islam puts a more menacing kind of confrontational cast on the face of American Muslims, in particular Black American Muslims. Though Malcolm X, in the final years of his life, again, famously uh, rejects the Nation of Islam and converts to a more traditional form of Islam himself after his pilgrimage to Mecca, which probably partly results in his assassination, likely by members of the Nation of Islam itself. So even some members of the Nation of Islam start to have doubts about its legitimacy as a form of Islam. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, 
Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. There's lots of kind of pop Christianity books that do come up after 9-11 on some of that stuff. My perspective, that seems to have dropped off over the last 20 years. You know, there's kind of a rise in that first five, six, seven years. I see fewer of those books these days. And I'm wondering, is it that folks found other (laughs) opponents to be like, no, look, the Antichrist is over there? Is it that there's changing attitudes towards Islam? Is it that there's more familiarity? I do think that there has been a decline of interest in dispensational theology generally in the American evangelical community. And I'm not, that would be an interesting research project for some sociologist or maybe historian to take on about why, why that is obviously has not gone away. The forms of dispensationalism now are, are probably a, a little less aggressive about making predictions and having the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. I certainly think on social media that, you, I mean, it's just become a, a fixture in some of the circles that I observe that disparaging dispensational theology among evangelicals as, you know, reformed people and, and that sort of thing has become as common as the promotion of dispensational theology. So, I mean, the horror of 9-11, again, understandably, I try not to be, you know, dismissive about these things because I, I think there's understandable reactions to the horror of 9-11, but it did spawn renewed emphasis on end times theology. Maybe this is, has something to do with the beginning of the end. Then as the novelty of the horror of 9-11 fades away and you get bogged down in wars and interminable wars, and there's just inevitably kind of a declining interest in apocalyptic interpretations of those, those events. What I've observed about trends in evangelical culture is that there is, of course, sustained interest in evangelism and missions in the Muslim world and that. I think has been a fixture of evangelical culture for more than a century, but also apologetics. I think their Muslim versus Christian apologetics continues to be a major issue, maybe most importantly, led by the late Nabil Qureshi. If I can gauge anything by my son's uh, YouTube video watching habits into the room and he's watching old videos of Nabil Qureshi talking about I, I think in a, in a relatively ironic way about his own conversion from Islam to, to Christianity and comparing, you know, the, the beliefs of the two sides and why uh, Qureshi, of course, thought that Christianity was, was true. But there were versions of that coming out after 9-11 that, that were much harder-edged, kind of, you know, Muhammad was a pedophile kind of stuff, fact to the kind of imposter language about Muhammad and I think some of that hard-edged, both end times talk and apologetics has faded a little bit, but interest in missions and apologetics, I mean, as long as we're evangelicals, apologetics and missions will be part of the movement for sure. Yeah, Tommy, I wanted to just follow your side note about Nabil really quickly and say, 
One of the things that I found fascinating about the interest and attention paid to him is that he was from the Ahmadi community, which many Muslims don't even recognize as a true form of Islam. I, yeah, I just was intrigued in the ways I, I have not consumed a lot of his material, but the ways that he characterized the experience. Do you know to what extent he talked about Islam through his lens as Ahmadi and kind of talked about that overall, or if he was much broader in how he looked and defined that? I've read his most famous book. I, I, I thought it was good, actually, because I think it is relatively ironic, but I'm confident that Muslim apologists who you can also find on YouTube denouncing Nabil Qureshi and, 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 and so forth. But, but that they would, among many things they would say about him is that, you know, that he was a heretic in his family anyway. And so what difference does it make that this aberrant Muslim converted to Christianity? What do you expect? So I think that Qureshi noted that in, in his work, but also tried to portray himself as someone who understood the differences between Sunni and Ahmadi and those different branches of Islam, but that he's trying to introduce American Christians generally to what Islam as a whole is and why Christianity is, is superior. What are the ways in which evangelical Christians have actively participated in or enabled the wave of Islamophobia that we've seen at various times? especially in the past 20 years? There was definitely a burst of not uniquely evangelical Islamophobia after 9-11. Some evangelicals, you know, definitely piled on. Franklin Graham, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, uh, you know, there was a, a Southern Baptist leader who said that Muhammad was a demon-possessed pedophile in the years after 9-11. And, and again, you know, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm overly charitable. I mean, people were angry about 9-11. I was angry. Lots of Americans were angry. And when you're angry, you say incautious things. You know, these are places where, you know, there are plenty of polls that will show that white evangelicals, usually when polls talk about evangelicals, they're only talking about whites or have an especially negative impression of Islam. And I'm sure that that reflects something that's going on on the ground in evangelical churches. But we also know that usually these polls are very imprecise about who counts as an evangelical. You know, maybe that just means somebody who considers themselves religious and they watch Fox News. And if, you know, yes or no by a pollster, are you an evangelical? They kind of say, yeah, I guess, whatever. And then they have negative views about Islam. I, I, I don't think usually those things tell us much that's very interesting. And there are plenty of, you know, important evangelical leaders who people like Timothy George, who wrote, I, I think, a very fine book about, about this debate about is the, the father of Jesus, the God of Muhammad, that, that I think is a very careful, intelligent evangelical approach to this question because there are very fundamental theological differences between Christianity and Islam. Traditional Muslims and traditional Christians affirm that. The view of the Trinity, for instance, that's totally different. View of Jesus, totally different. Of course, many Muslims respect Jesus as prophet, not the son of God. Some people from the outside of evangelical culture would regard any kind of statement of fundamental difference as a species of Islamophobia. I don't. But saying that Muhammad was a demon-possessed pedophile, I would. So, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just unnecessary, that kind of extreme inflammatory language. So, you know, to me, I always feel like we've got to figure out, you know, which evangelicals are we talking about and how do we know that they're evangelicals? And it usually is a little more complicated than, say, you know, a poll would suggest. One example that I think definitely squarely involves evangelicals happened in the Southern Baptist Convention several years ago with regards to CT's new colleague, Russell Moore, and his ministry, the ERLC, which he led, which was at that time, you know, a lot of religious freedom advocating specifically that also looked at finding common cause for Muslims. Can you talk a little bit about that controversy that happened there? Sure. And one of the specific controversies was about the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission supporting a mosque in, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, about, that had a run afoul of some local 
zoning ordinances. And this happens to churches too, that relatively less sympathetic city boards will not allow churches to be built for ostensibly zoning reasons. That happens to mosques too. Russell Moore and the ERLC, you know, said, well, look, I mean, if, if we're going to support churches in this sort of thing, we also need to support mosques and synagogues if it happens to them and other faith groups who are trying to build buildings and, you know, getting, facing bureaucratic harassment and, and this kind of thing. And of course, there was a significant outcry in the Southern Baptist Convention and in other more fundamentalist type of circles about, well, this means that Russell Moore and his crowd are Muslim sympathizers. And, but I think that there would have been broad support among many, many pastors in that Southern Baptist Convention for Moore's position because of the historic Baptist commitment to religious liberty. And so going back to the founding period, even people like John Leland, the great Baptist evangelist and advocate of religious liberty and friend of Thomas Jefferson and John Leland, even in those days, the time of the revolution, John Leland was saying, you know, that religious liberty is for all religious groups and that evangelicals and Baptists should support a sort of free market of religion, because if you do, the gospel will win. To me, obviously sympathetic to what Moore was doing in that, in that case. But yes, I mean, that was one of uh, many reasons, as you all well know, that Moore got flagged in the SBC and, and ultimately uh, decided to leave. Another thing that I think was a, a big cultural flashpoint was just to pick on, we were talking earlier about Bush mentioning that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. I'd love to hear more about how those comments were treated. And, and as well, we'll talk about the Richa Hawkins episode at Wheaton, where she is a Wheaton College professor, also made similar remarks to that and how that was all handled as well. On the Bush issue, I mean, I admire what Bush was trying to do. You know, I appreciate that, as we just talked about at the beginning, about the ambivalences and tensions that he's trying to negotiate. I, I don't think anyone would mistake George W. Bush for a great theologian. I, I think his efforts to be kind and generous and set the right tone were sometimes a, a bit ham-handed theologically. Um, even some more kind of broad-minded evangelical folks would, would say, well, Okay, I mean, if you're saying that Islam had Christian roots that it was partly drawing on, that that's true. And you know, maybe if the idea is that when Muslims refer to God, they're referring to the same God that Christians are referring to and that Jews are referring to, but worship, you know, I, I mean, Jesus talked about, you know, that. God is looking for worship worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. I mean, don't, don't you have to have a sort of a baseline correct theology be before you can accurately worship? I mean, I, I think that those are totally legitimate evangelical questions that even people like Timothy George of Beeson Divinity School were raising about, well, if the idea is, we want to be as kind and generous to our Muslim neighbors we possibly can. Yes, absolutely. But we also need to recognize that there are theological gulfs between Christians and Muslims that just can't be bridged, especially again about Trinity, about the way of salvation and those sorts of you know, pretty important things. The Laurisha Hawkins episode is a, it's another type of flashpoint over that about, you know, how much accommodation can be made toward Islam in an evangelical context and anything that, that smacks of, well, you know, the differences don't really matter that much and we, we should just love people. At some point, that's going to run up against just traditional evangelical belief and it's, it's not going to work anymore. For me, as an evangelical and a scholar of evangelicals, the trick is always how do you balance a kindness and charity and love of neighbor with a kind of sobriety about deep theological difference between these religious traditions. And they're not the same. They're polar opposites in some, on some very important issues. As usual, Christians tend to go to one extreme or the other on those types of questions. Tommy, it was really great having this discussion with you. For people who are also maybe confused, but hopefully educated more and satisfied with that, 
send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We would love to hear how you are yeah, reflecting on 9-11 20 years afterwards. And specifically, you want to share with us about how your relationships with your Muslim neighbors, friends, community have changed. Yeah, please send us those emails. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and it's where we get to hear everyone share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, you're up. I decided now that you are, you, you still live in Hawaii, but you're not in Hawaii uh, <laughs> currently. You're going to be traveling around for a while. So I, I've had this thing that I, I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I should share that. But I'm like, we got too much Hawaii in our podcast already. Uh, I share it not because it's Hawaii, although it's probably because it's Hawaii, but it's just like what has been bringing me joy. I'm like, I should probably tell people about my secret tool that I use after a hard day <laughs> or some mornings while I'm having my coffee. And that is a YouTube live stream. You can find it by Googling Aqualink Mega Lab. Just a live stream. It's underwater. It's in the wild off of, I believe it is the big island. Uh, it is some Hawaiian coral reefs. It has tons and tons of fish. It's the best fish cam I've ever seen. And <laughs> um, it is a marine sanctuary. There's some man-made structure there that I think is, is abandoned. You can't do it first thing in the morning because it's dark in Hawaii. But it's awesome. I will just say, sitting there and staring at fish on my big screen TV, it just calms the nerves. It lowers the blood pressure. It is free therapy, especially, you know, I do this, my puppy jumps in my lap. I give my puppy pets, stare at the fish. I can't recommend it high enough. Aqualink Mega Lab Hawaii live stream. I will put a link to that feed in the podcast. Yeah, sure. Why not? Oh, I'm on social at Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E. Morgan Lee, what's bringing you joy? Okay, so I'm going to be gone for several weeks, I am going to just do a big one um, as far as what I'm going to share about Hawaii. I went parasailing recently. Nice. <laughs> which was fun. Yeah, it's fun to be up that high. I did talk to the parasailing person afterwards who said, if I really want the roller coaster experience, I should go when the winds are 23 to 24 miles per hour. And you would only know that the day of, obviously. But then you get lifted up and down. We did not have the roller coaster experience type parasailing, but it is fun to get first up into the air. Unfortunately, my two friends that I was with were not into me trying to go upside down on the parasail and kept oh screaming goodness. at me. Listen, I'm upside down all the time for all their stuff. So anyway, they kept me like, stop, don't do that. You're scaring us. I'm like, we're already up this high. Like you already come into being up this high. Nothing bad is going to happen. Although. I will say I was a little surprised that the carabiners that they use to clip you in don't have like locks on them. At least in my aerial classes, all of our carabiners have like locks that not lock. I don't know what to put in, some secure measure on them. So that was a little bit surprising to me that I could have just like pushed my thumb on it and I guess slipped off. Anyway, did not try that. That was not my goal while I was there, but it was fun. Man. Oh, that's good. That's good. You know, even though I grew up where there was a fair bit of parasailing, my main thinking is still that Jurassic World scene where, you know, where they're parasailing and they end up trapped on the island. Not a very good movie, but if I were to go parasailing, that's what I'd be afraid of, being eaten by dinosaurs. Morgan, where can people find you online? N-E-P-A-Y-N-L, and you can find me there on Twitter. Tommy, what is bringing you joy recently? Well, I think I'll go back to the fish theme. I fish a lot. I've fished more than ever in my life during COVID here, I've even gotten a kayak to take out on, on the lake. It's a really small kayak. And so I, I had last week, I had for a long time this kind of thought about like, what if I got into a really big fish? And like, what, what would I do? Yes, what would you do? Yeah, right. and, and so I got a little taste of it. It wasn't like Leviathan or anything, but I hooked a probably about a seven or eight pound blue catfish. Catfish have that size especially have sharp teeth. I was kind of thinking, okay, I, so it surfaced. I thought, oh, that's a big fish. Okay, so what am I going to do? So I kind of made it up on the fly and let the catfish sort of fight for a while. And then it got tuckered out. And then I paddled to shore 
got it up on the shore, you know, got the hook out and sent it on its way. It was a very happy outcome for, uh, wow. for me and and uh, for the pro- fish. Well, the fish was probably bothered about the whole thing, but not, <laughs> but, not but not injured. So Wait, uh, logistically, that, how do you paddle in fish at the same time? It's quite a feat of coordination, but uh, I, I, you know, I basically just had the rod sort of over the over the side and held in my in my lap, and then I was just paddling along. I wasn't very far from shore when okay. when I when I got it. Did you it, get a but, picture of fracking rigs? Well, part of the theme of the uh, small kayak is I take almost nothing with me, and <laughs> if it if my phone, you know, if I capsize, my phone is going to the bottom <laughs> of the lake. So, um, and it's also I, I've tried to really integrate intentionally significant time in my life where I do not have my mm. phone with me. And that, that's mm. that's one of them. So very few fishing selfies lately, but I do kind of wish I'd had it for that fish. But alas, I'll just uh, verbally narrate the story and the catfish went on its way and is hopefully <laughs> ha- happily living still in Lake Waco even as we speak. Oh, that is great. Like you, Tommy, do you exist on social media? I do, uh, at Thomas S. Kidd on Twitter and Instagram. And remind people what your blog is. It's Evangelical History of the Gospel Coalition. And you know, I don't do this with every guest, but I can't recommend Tommy's writing highly enough. What's the next book that we can expect? It seems like you've been putting out two or three or four a year. So I, I, you know... Well, Maybe that, this is a, that, uh, that was just 2019 you. now. I, 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 I've, okay. I've been on hiatus, at least from actual publishing books, but... The next book out is called Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Oh, great. Uh, not controversial at all. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, it'll be out, Lord willing, in, in the spring with Yale University Press. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Faith and Dovu. If you have feedback for us, which again, we always hope you do, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com and we always appreciate hearing from all of you. Hope you have a great week and talk to you soon. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.